The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
morning. <clears throat> I think you'll notice if anybody paid much attention and you read the front of this, I'm not Jeremy Berry. <laughs> but last week he wasn't Wayne McAllister either, so we did a swap. <clears throat> but it, it led into what I want to talk about today, about our names. And, you know, a name is simply something, it, it's a word that is given to distinguish something from the others. That's, that's all a name is. But we know that names are important to God. Genesis chapter 2, when God created the world and everything in it, he brought every creature to Adam so that he could give it a name. And all of us remember the story of Abram. And Abram was faithful to God, and Abram, Abram's name was changed to Abraham by God. His wife, Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah by God. Abraham means father of many nations. Sarah means mother of many nations. Because of Abraham's faithfulness to God, he was promised many children as the stars are in the sky. <clears throat> and that affects us as we see in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26, starting there. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now here in verse 29, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. <clears throat> the promise that God made when he changed his name is still the blessing that's poured down on us today. And God changed his name, but because he was blessed by God, it gave him an identity besides his name. You know, we're, we're fixing to partake of the Lord's Supper, and we're commemorating the death of Christ. But this little cup, this doesn't make you a Christian. This is a celebration of that gift, that sacrifice, the blood, innocent blood that was shed for us that took away our sins. This is why we're here. You know, I say that sometimes. This is why we're here, to praise God for his gift. And looking at our names, our name is who we are but our identity is what God did through Christ for us this is our identity this is what we celebrate this is what we praise God for let's pray Heavenly Father we're so thankful to come into your presence to praise you to honor you and to worship you and we worship you because of your love for us and the gift of heaven that we couldn't do on our own. Father, as we partake this communion, open our hearts, draw us closer to you. Help us to truly worship your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name we pray.
took him 90 minutes to steal the Empire State Building. The New York Daily Times in December of 2008 stole the $2 billion building, and it really didn't even take a lot of effort. They were, it wasn't even really very hard. It was a 102-story building. They didn't steal it and move it somewhere. They drew up a bunch of bogus documents. They bought a fake notary stamp, and they put it all together and filed the paperwork with the city of New York to transfer the deed of the property. And some of the details were hilarious. One of the witnesses to this deal, signed on the witnesses, was a lady named Faye Ray. Now, now some of you got that. That's the original character in the King Kong movie, the woman that was taken by King Kong. Uh, the notary, the notary's person, the name of the notary was a guy named Willie Sutton. Willie Sutton was a famous bank robber. He had uh, sold, uh, stolen from 20 or 30 different major banks. And they got it, uh, got all these papers filled out. And less than 90 minutes after they filled them out, they filed them with the city, they rubber stamped them, and they transferred the deed of the Empire State Milling from the Empire State Land Associates to get this to Nellett's Property LLC. Nellett's is the word stolen spelled backwards. Now, don't worry, the newspaper returned the, the building to the rightful owners the next day. It was a publicity stunt, and it was one of these investigative reports. They had seen a loophole in how the papers were filed, and they wanted to exploit it and show that people could do this to you and take and make up a fake deed and then go get the deed and then go to a bank and borrow money against it and leave you with a stolen building and no way to... To fight back, but it was an interesting, fun thing, uh, fun story, and it, and it got me thinking: Do we ever root for the thief? Do we ever root for the bad guy? And I will—I believe we do in some of the movies that we've watched. Ocean's Eleven. Okay, we're all you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen, eight, however many of them there are. Uh, Italian Job, Thomas Crown Affair. The the hero is the thief. The hero is the bad guy, and and we're kind of rooting for him to be able to pull off the heist, and it's fun. Do we root for the bad guy? We're in this series called Storyline. The parables of Jesus tell the story of Jesus. We're going to keep looking at parables all through the Christmas season. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So if you're joining us on the radio or online, if you'd turn there with us, we're glad that you're with us in Central Christian Church in Portales. And I just want to warn you, we're going to look at one of the weirdest parables there is. There is no good guy in this parable. And when I started framing out the parable series, I wanted to do this one. I've never preached this sermon. I've never really looked at it. I've always been bugged by this parable because it, it deals with some of the hardest concepts we have to face as Christians. Idolatry and what really comes first in our life. Do we really do what he has called us? to do? Now, I've got to warn you, this parable will disturb you and will will really help us to reframe and rethink about our work, our money, and our efforts. And I think it'll really bug you. If it doesn't, then I don't think you really were listening very well today. So if you walk out of here and you're not a little perturbed at me or at Jesus, then you, you should maybe go back and read this again. But we're going to read it from the New Living Translation. Join me in chapter 16 of the book of Luke. Jesus is talking here. He told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Oh, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I am fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. 
And how much do you owe my employer, he asked the next man. Well, I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's look at this. The most obvious question here is, uh huh? What? What? Why did he use a bad guy here? There's no moral to this story. There's no happy, well, you see, Timmy, this is why. It's never, it, it doesn't have one of those kinds of storylines. And if you just casually read it, an argument can be made that says, Jesus says it's okay to cheat. I mean, if you just casually read it, you could make that argument. But I don't think that's the whole story. It says in the very first verse that Jesus was talking to his disciples. But I, got, I get a hunch there are people around. If you read on down a little bit, Pharisees and Sadducees were standing around. And I don't think they heard the whole story. I think some of them probably said, hey, man, I like this preacher. He says I can go rip off my boss. This is awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to go to his church a lot. I like that. But I wonder if maybe Jesus is inviting us to lean in and to really listen and really think and start peeling this story back. Now, let's start with the manager. Before the story starts, he's not very good. Apparently, he was either lazy or wasting the money. His awful work habits were so bad that the master fires him, and and now he's kind of freaking out. Just curious, by show of hands, how many of you have ever been fired from a job? A eh, few. A few of us have been fired. That's a, that's a weird feeling, okay? Uh, and it comes out in a couple of different, two or three different ways. Maybe, maybe your first response if you've been fired is, well, I'll show those jerks. They don't know what they're losing. Or it might come out in, Oh man, I'm such a loser. I, I, there's no, no hope for me. I'm worthless. There's nothing going to be any good. Maybe one of the read between the lines in this story is Jesus is trying to get us to have the courage to look at, look at ourselves. If we really want to make changes, maybe they were 100% wrong. Maybe they were only 30% wrong. You know? And maybe he's saying, Maybe we need to have the courage to look in the mirror. Our culture wants us to find somebody to blame. And I mean, isn't that fair? That's what our culture wants. You've got to blame somebody for anything bad that happens. Maybe, maybe we need to look inside the mirror. Look and see what are some changes I need to make. So, and ask some tough questions. Here's a tough question. What are your work habits like? Are you a hard worker? Now, I'm not trying to insult anyone, okay? You may be sitting there going, I work really hard, Don. Great, this part's not for you. Just tune out for a minute or two, all right? But I think the Bible is telling us that our work habits and the thing that we do for, from 8 to 5 or whatever your, your times of work are, I think God is calling us to be the best at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, while we were studying that in our uh, Wednesdays in the Word in our Tuesday night college group, we studied the, th- the letters to Thessalonica this year, and one of the letters starts out, We thank God for your faithful work, your loving deeds, and your enduring hope in Christ Jesus. And it could be easily said that Paul, when he's writing there, is just saying, Oh, those are nice churchy fluff words. But he's saying, 
I, I think he's saying even deeper. I've heard a lot about your faithful work. Well, isn't that the work of the Lord? Well, maybe it is, but he says you're enduring deeds of love. What if he is really talking about how you and I go through our jobs during the week? In Colossians 3 and verse 23, Paul says in another place, work as if you were working for the Lord. Isn't that the official dad verse? Anytime we send the kid out to do some work, you know, hey, work because, you know, Jesus is watching. Or in this time of year, Santa is watching. But work as if you are working for the Lord. Paul is emphasizing our work habits. And he is talking to people that are oppressed. They're in a bad world situation. They're not leaders. They're heavily taxed. And there's not a... It's not a welfare system. If they don't get a good job and they don't take care of their business, government is not going to take care of them. They've got to work hard. I think Paul is, is writing, and I think he is expecting that Christ followers will live differently. We will have a different habit. We will have a different work habit. And the impact you can make in your workplace is immeasurable. It is absolutely, uh, can be life and death. How you shine for him might mean eternity for somebody. You hearing me? Because he has put you in some powerful places. He's put you in places that Franklin and I can't get to. In relationships, in friendships, in, in times, in work areas that you can shine for him. And I love this quote. You may be the only Bible they see. Are, they, are you showing them a hard-working, trustworthy person? Paul is suggesting that we should be the best workers ever. Now let's go back to this parable. This guy has been an awful worker. But then on the last day, he tries. <laughs> the last day, he, he puts out a little effort. And, and i got to give him a little bit of credit for being self-aware enough to say, Hey, man, I can't dig. I'm too old to dig and I'm too proud to beg. So I got to come up with something else. I got to find something I'm going to do because at the end of the day, I'm going to be unemployed. And he leverages the one thing that he has to protect his future, his job. He utilizes his job. Now, at first glance, as I said, if you don't dig into this story, you can glance at this story. And is Jesus approving of misappropriation of funds? I do not believe that. Is he approving of lying? No. What, what I think the parables are really challenging us is, are we making any changes? And when we started this series, the parables are not real stories. They're not real people. We're not binding Christian rules onto these people. He's using an example here. And it's clear these are not Christ followers. In verse 8 it says, the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with this world. And so he's talking to a different people. And the Christian rules don't necessarily apply there. Now those of us that are Christians and we go to church and we look at the challenges God has given us and then we look at people out there and say, you're not living like I am. Maybe we need to just introduce them to Jesus and let Jesus do the change in you and me. So Jesus calls him shrewd. It's an interesting word. Would it be fair to say that that word has a negative connotation? Eh, fairly. And I was really bugged by that word, so I started digging. And Webster says, uh, gives two definitions of the word shrewd. One is marked by clever discerning awareness. It's interesting. And the other one was given to artful ways of dealing. I mean, they don't necessarily say negative, but you can see how it's twisted. But do you realize that's not the only time Jesus uses this word? In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, he is sending out his 12 disciples. He is sending them out with the gospel. He is blessing them, empowering them, and ordaining them to go preach. And he says, I'm sending you like lambs to the wolves. And then he says, so I need you to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Shrewd as snakes? Oh, that crawled all over me because... I don't like snakes. Anyway, uh, snakes are always evil. Uh, I mean, hey, Garden of Eden, hello. Uh, you know, uh, it has this negative connotation. But in the 
Egyptian world, the Egyptian symbol of wisdom is actually a snake. The snake is the wise one. And what in our culture would be the wise old owl, you know, the Winnie the Pooh, the owl, oh, he's older, he's wiser, he knows the ways of the world, and he tells, you know, how many licks it gets to, it takes to get to the inner, center of a Tootsie Pop. Uh, but he's thoughtful, he's wise. And that's how what a snake was. But you know what else? Snakes bite. So I want you to be smart, but I want you to be simple and innocent. Innocent as doves. What do you think of when you think of the release of doves? It's usually a happy occasion, a wedding or the Olympics or something that's fun. I want you to be as innocent as doves, but he says you need to be shrewd. You need to be wise. You need to know how to deal with people. Don't snap back at them. Treat them with respect. Treat them with love. I saw a preacher post something a while back that said, one minute your posts are cussing folks out, the next you're quoting Scripture. Have we seen those kind? And and what about James chapter 3 and verse 11? He says, fresh water and salt water cannot come from the same spring. Friends, God has prepared someone that you are, are designed to talk to. Now, you may not think that, but he has built a long time ago places where you can talk and places you can pour into people. And he's built common things among you. Maybe he's, he's challenging us to take the world that we're in and use it to connect with people and connect them to the Christ. Maybe it's... Uh, maybe it's through National Final Rodeo, where a bunch of people are watching the rodeo, you're into rodeo. Maybe there's somebody around you that you can talk about rodeo with and lead that conversation into a conversation with Jesus. Maybe it's NASCAR. Maybe it's movies. Maybe it's theater. Maybe it's books. Maybe it's motorcycles or finance or, or any of a number of things that you're into and how you connect with somebody and draw them in and point them to Jesus. Be shrewd. Be smart. Be wise. Use the tools He gives you. And love people the way Jesus loves us. Because folks, it's going to be our love, not our opinions that change people. It's going to be how we love them and how we point them to Jesus. So Jesus explains this wacko parable with this, use what you have. That's basically what he says. Use what is around you to make a difference. Use your money. Don't focus on getting more of it. Utilize it to build relationships. Do you realize money is the second biggest topic Jesus talks about in all of his teachings? First being the kingdom. He talks more about the kingdom and second most about money more than any other thing in all of his teaching. Now the manager comes up with this idea. It's wrong. It's illegal. I still don't figure out how one guy got a 50% discount and one only got a 20%. That's kind of, you know, it seems like you'd do something really big. But he used what he had and Jesus celebrated. He used the now for later. Let me ask you this. What are you using now that is to benefit later? And I'm not talking about your 401k. I'm not talking about your retirement plans. What of your money and your resources and your job and your, your relationships, what are you using right now to, to point to eternity, to point to the kingdom? How are you influencing others and using what God has given you? What about your workplace? What about your business or your classroom? Are you using it as leverage? Not, not to be illegal or immoral, but to use it to point people to the cross. Because that's what he's calling us to do, is to be disciples and make disciples. Folks, this is going to take a different kind of thinking than the world. The world's thinking has one main criteria. I can describe it in two letters. The main criteria of all of our culture's thinking is these two letters, M-E, me. 
Because everything's about me. Everything's about get more, get more for me, do whatever I can do. Let me see if I can explain it in some other letters. How many of you have heard the letters FTX recently? Have we heard those letters in the news lately? Okay. Uh, Somebody's absconded with a lot of real cash, with fake cash, to the tune of 50, 60, 200 billion. I don't know how much it is. It's humongous money. Uh, Anybody remember a guy named Bernie Madoff? Bernie made off with about $65 million of somebody's dollars, all right? And they caught him, and they put him in jail, and he died in jail. Anybody remember a fun little company called Enron? Man, you know, they, they just were swapping stuff. They, all of those things, billions of dollars. Why? Dishonest people thinking of themselves. What's in it for me? But you see, to a Christ follower, we will always benefit when we put others above us. We will always benefit. And I'm not talking about, let's just go out and be nice. I'm not not talking about that. I'm saying genuinely lifting others up, thinking of others. Genuinely looking, how can I get them to see Jesus in a new way? How can I introduce them to Jesus in a new way? Surveys will tell us, The people that visit church for the first time, 88% of them will tell you they came because somebody invited them. Not because of advertising, not because of a program, but because somebody face-to-face invited them. Will we do that? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. How many of you have been in meetings... And uh, with your club or your organization or your team, and somebody comes up and says, hey, we need to have a fundraiser. Anybody been in those meetings? we got to do something. we got to raise some funds. All right, what are we going to do for a fundraiser? Horrible meetings. I hate those. And somebody says, oh, we can have a car wash. We can have a garage sale. What are we going to do for, a, for a, a fundraiser? Now, this is my opinion, but it's funny to me that when we're set in those meetings, it's, it's funny we always seem to to look at something we did or somebody else did. We always look backwards. Hey, well, I heard this group that they sold this and they made a bunch of money. I heard this. Now, I'm a big fan of work smarter, not harder. If somebody's created a better wheel, let's use it. But most of the time, we don't think of new ideas. We just think, what what has worked? Let's steal that. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm wondering, do we do that? with how we talk to people about Jesus? Do we only think about what we used to do? And back in my day, we had a gospel meeting, or back in my day, we passed out tracts. You know, do, we, do we sit around and say, man, what could we do to point people to Jesus? What crazy thing, what, how could we use our money to point people to Jesus? How could we, how could we use our job? How could we use our team to point people to Jesus? Maybe you're in the military. Have you invited people in your squadron to come to church with you? I'm not trying to get anybody in Dutch with the Air Force. I love you, and I love the Air Force, and I appreciate it. But have you asked people in your squadron? What about teammates? I know a lot of you parents in here, you have kids on the team, and you sit around with the same other parents that their kids are on that team, so you're always doing the same... Have you taken the time to say, hey, we're having this movie Friday night. Why don't you come to the movie with us? Hey, we're doing this small group thing. Hey, we're going to get together. How can we do something new? Because, friends, I think if we will transform our thinking, Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind have a have a new mind if we will think differently about how to talk to somebody what what could we do then it will transform how we act as well look folks i don't think jesus is glamorizing the criminal in this parable i think he's pointing to criminals as being clever is that a fair statement I mean, we all see them and go, man, they're getting smarter and smarter all the time. How to do these, you know, how to rip people off and how to scam you with your email or your phone or everything. And they're all the time looking for some new way. He's not saying look at how great they are. He's saying their thinking is different. And we've got to think differently. Now, dishonesty is clearly condemned in Scripture. Can we agree on that? 
Okay, It does it even in the passage that we said. If you're dishonest with a little, you'll be dishonest with much. I'm not saying we need to be dishonest. You know, dishonesty is condemned. You know what's not condemned? Gray matter. The stuff between your ears. He has put that in there, and I think he kind of has this idea we should use it. How can we... How can we manage, how can we leverage what we have to make a difference for him? I love this quote from David Jackman in his book, Authentic Church. So the world's not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate an extraordinary godliness seen in love. Friends, at the end of the day, money means nothing in eternity. You know what does? The kingdom. And just a second, we're going to watch a video, and I'm going, to, I'm going to hang on to it for just a second. And I want to prep it a little bit, because I want you to watch this. It's one of those on the road with Steve Hartman. You know I like these. I don't know if the guy's a Christian, but they're just, they have Christian morals to them, and I love them. And, I, and so I, I keep some of these around. And, and I want you to watch this one, because the main character in this video is who you think it is, but that's not who I'm wanting you to watch for. I'm watching, I want you to watch for a different guy that's on the side. And I want you to watch how he utilizes what he has to make a difference. And I just want to ask, could we do the same? Dennis, let's roll this. And I know you guys get tired of me. It's little things. Coach Peter Morales of the Coronado High School Thunderbirds in El Paso, Texas, makes no qualms about it. He has a favorite on this team. Mitchell, I need you. I need you to help me out with my coaching tips, Mitchell. Team manager Mitchell Marcus has a developmental disability. One, two, three, four. But he far surpasses everyone here when it comes to love of the game. He's just an amazing person that our basketball team loves being around. Yay! Mitchell's mom, Amy, says he's always been that way. Mitchell always had a basketball. That was always what he wanted for his birthday. And because basketball is that important to him, on the last game of the regular season, the coach told Mitchell to suit up. What was it like to put on the uniform? I was very happy. I imagine you were. Just wearing a jersey was enough for Mitchell. But what he didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that the coach planned to play him. At the end, no matter what the score. You were prepared to lose that game? For his moment, yes. For his moment in time, yes. And so, with a minute and a half left, Coronado leading, but only by 10, Coach Morales put in his manager. And just started hearing Mitchell, Mitchell. But here's where the fairy tale fell apart. Although his teammates did everything they could to get Mitchell a basket, each time they passed him the ball, he either missed the shot, or, like on their last possession, booted it out of bounds, turning the ball over to the other team with just seconds left. He wasn't going to be able to score. But I was hoping that he was happy that he was just put in the game. Could you have ever imagined what happened next? No, I did. I could not. Not at all. What happened next happened on the inbound. The guy with the ball there is a senior at Franklin High School. Number 22, Jonathan Montanez. Uh, I, just, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. Just thought Mitchell deserved his chance, deserves his opportunity. I think I'll cry about it for the rest of my life. What Jonathan did was yell out Mitchell's name, then threw the ball right to it, right there. One of the most memorable turnovers of all time. It wasn't the game-winning shot. When the buzzer sounded, Coronado had 15 more points than Franklin. But Jonathan's assist and Mitchell's basket did change the outcome decidedly play any game with this much sportsmanship. Both teams win. Steve Hartman on the road in El Paso, Texas. Did you catch the guy I wanted you to see? He was on the other team for crying out loud. But he utilized and he leveraged what he had to change a life. Can you use your job or your relationships or your soccer team or your hobbies to point people to Jesus. Not just to make friends, but to point those friends to Jesus. There's one other thing I want you to get right before we finish up. is how the manager in this story saw time. He saw time was important. The boss said, hey, 
I'm hearing bad things. I want an accounting report, and you're done, all right? One day. That's it. That's all I got. My life is about to be over. He realized there's no more time to make a difference. I've got to do it today. Have we lost the urgency of the gospel? Have we, have we lost how important it is to not just be kind and not just be nice and not just invite, but how important it is to do it now? Not one of these days, this day. Because the urgency of the, the gospel is that we be disciples and we make disciples. We've just encountered a parable of Jesus with a crook at the center of it. <laughs> I doubt the disciples were expecting this. Maybe you and I weren't either. But the stories of Jesus tell his story. A couple of weeks, we're going to get together, we're going to dim the lights, we're going to pass around some candles, we're going to sing Silent Night, we're going to talk about the baby. And it's fun to celebrate the baby Jesus. But the baby coming is not the only part of the story. The baby comes to change us. And the more we hear his stories, those are stories we can tell. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, move us. Move us to urgency. Move us to utilize what we have been given to point people to You. Give us words. Give us courage to talk to that family member, to talk to that co-worker, to talk to that neighbor. Give us the words. Give us the, the need to pass them the ball. And let us point everyone to You. Make room in our hearts so you can do what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.